Support for Valley Edition comes from the James Irvine Foundation, accepting nominations now for the 2023 James Irvine Foundation Leadership Awards at irvineawards.org. The California Endowment. Health happens when Californians value schools more than prisons. Learn more at calendow.org. The California Healthcare Foundation, working to build a more effective, compassionate, and just healthcare system. On the web at chcf.org health dash equity. From KVPR, you're listening to Valley Edition. I'm Kathleen Schock. On today's show, a potential dairy farm expansion in Merced County gets a mixed reaction from residents. Plus, a movement in Fresno to make salons and barbershops more welcoming to transgender people. But first, the other California. That's KVPR's new podcast that takes you to the small rural towns of the San Joaquin Valley. This week's episode is focused on Chowchilla. Like many towns in the 40s and 50s, Chowchilla had racist housing covenants that kept certain groups of people out. But just a couple miles from town was a place where Black people could actually buy property. And they did. I hope nobody takes this the wrong way, but honestly, Fairmead isn't much to look at. It's basically just a couple of churches, a school, and a collection of homes surrounded by agricultural fields. I've probably driven past it a hundred times without even noticing the small sign on the highway that says Fairmead. Arguably, its biggest claim to recent fame was the old Mammoth Orange hamburger stand on Highway 99, and it was torn down more than 20 years ago. I'm here in Fairmead at the home of Barbara Nelson to attend the monthly board meeting a Fairmead Community and Friends, a nonprofit advocacy group Barbara co-founded with Vicki Ortiz and Elaine Moore. Elaine lets herself in the back door, decked out in a long red skirt for Valentine's Day, precariously balancing a homemade cherry cobbler. I had to go change clothes before I got here. I spilled the cobbler juice all down the front of my oh, jumper. You, you did cobbler, huh? Yeah, I had. There are about 10 of us here. Not a big crowd, but more than enough to fill Barbara's small home. It feels more like a potluck than a board meeting of people trying to improve their community. The eclectic group, young, old, black, white, Latino, has the easy rapport of old friends. <laughs> because Fairmead is classified as a census-designated place, there's no mayor or city council. Instead, there's Barbara, Vicki, and Elaine. These women are the voice of the roughly 1,100 people who call Fairmead home. Elaine, who is married to a longtime almond farmer, describes it as community service rooted in friendship. All you have to do is let them know you need help, and they're here. Yeah. You know, whether it's a disaster or it's a happy time and we're going to have a party, it's just, it's a camaraderie, it's true friendship. doesn't matter what color your skin is, what language you have. These three women, one white, one black, and one uh, Hispanic, have, have kind of become the soul and the face of Fairmead. That's Michael Isinger. He's a historian and cultural anthropologist who wrote a book called Fairmead, A Century of Change. The primary focus, and especially of these three ladies, was to try to build community. They weren't worried about politics. They weren't worried about anything else. They wanted to build a sense of community. But in order to understand Fairmead today, it's helpful to start at the beginning. Because as Michael writes in his book, the history of Fairmead is both unique and emblematic. In the early 1900s, large companies based in L.A. and San Francisco owned much of the agricultural land in the San Joaquin Valley. And in an effort to turn a profit, a movement emerged among these companies to develop small towns, known as colonies, and sell off the plots to family farmers. In Fairmead's case, the parcels were marketed to Mennonite families in Germany and Russia on the promise of ample sunshine, fertile soil, 
and abundant water. It was a planned community. It had a hotel where the, the first couple of years on their Thanksgiving dinners, they had anywhere between five and 1,500 people coming to have Thanksgiving dinner at this hotel. Dignitaries from all over the state would stop. They had the, a French chef they brought in from Paris. I mean, this is, we're talking fair meat, right? In his book, Michael writes that at its start, Fairmead's future was as bright as any community in California. So you're probably asking yourself, what happened? The answer, at least according to him, is water. Fairmead doesn't have a lake, and there are no rivers running through town. So all that abundant water promised to those European settlers had to be pumped from the ground, which worked fine at first, But by the 1920s, farmers were having to dig their wells hundreds of feet into the earth to suck up the rapidly shrinking aquifer. At a certain point, it all just stopped making sense. And they reached a point where most of the whites that lived there said, to hell with this, and they bailed. And we had massive white plight. Chowchilla was being built just north of it. It started just a few years after Fairmead, but it had water. So all the whites moved from Fairmead into Chowchilla. This is where Fairmead's fate took a turn. With the white population gone, along with much of the groundwater, property values plummeted. But a speculator named Jacob Yakel saw an opportunity. He bought up most of Fairmead and sold the plots directly to black farmers. Now, this was a big deal because at that time, most communities used restrictive housing covenants to prevent Black people, along with many other ethnic groups, from buying property. But according to Michael, Fairmead meant Black people could own their own homes and establish their own communities, thanks to Jacob Yakel. They loved this man dearly because he would sell them their property, uh, their, you know, the, the, his property at market rates. He didn't mark it up. He sold it to them fairly. He treated them fairly. He treated them well. And that's how, the, for example, the Williams family were able to acquire enough land around Fairmead that by the 1950s, they had the largest dairy in California. The single largest dairy in the state of California was black owned by the Williams family in Fairmead. Michael says it was a smart use of the land because dairies didn't need as much water as crops. So that's how it came to be that on this dry, dusty land a few miles south of Chowchilla, a thriving black enclave was built. From the 1920s through the 1960s, Fairmead remained predominantly black, home to families like Barbara Nelson's. A lot of black folks started coming, moving here, buying property. My in-laws is one of them. The, the Nelsons, the Mitchells, the Amys, the Williams, all these families came. And there was uh, one guy had all this land and he sold it to them. Everybody, they was buying 20, 30, 40, 50, 100 acres. Land was cheap. And then... Um, Cotton was here. People was picking cotton. I grew up picking cotton, cutting grapes, because I tell my kids now that we were the farm workers, the African-Americans. We worked out here. The story of Fairmead reminds us that the Valley's agricultural history involves so much more than those iconic Dorothea Lange photos of white migrants driven west by the Dust Bowl. In reality, many people, including white, black, Japanese, Mexican, and Filipino farm workers, labor to turn this region into the world's food basket. But things started to shift in Fairmead following the passage of the Civil Rights Act of 1965. According to Michael Isinger, that's when Fairmead's population started to transform from predominantly Black to predominantly Hispanic. Why? Because in 1965, Chowchilla had to allow its first Black people to move in. And so people were, had, had options, whereas now these poor communities are, are absorbing a new population and they are having the same issues of water and isolation and uh, food deserts that, that these earlier communities struggled with. Barbara Nelson wasn't around for the shift in population that Michael just described. She and her husband Clyde left the valley in the mid-60s and called the Bay Area home for roughly 40 years. But after Clyde retired, they decided to move back to Fairmead to care for their aging parents. And when they arrived, Barbara was shocked by what she found. When I came back to Fairmead, 
in 2005 and we didn't have a store and I know this family just was pitiful. I hadn't seen no change. And I said, God, I need to make a difference. I'm down here. So I got with another resident and we started talking about it. And we came up with this group. Barbara's made a lot of, uh, of friends when she started mm -hmm. this up. That's Vicki Ortiz from Fairmead Community and Friends. She moved here because it was one of the few places in the Valley where she could still find affordable property. But she quickly learned that living in such a rural area meant the community was largely on its own when it came to solving problems. Being unincorporated, you don't know who to go to. If a fire hydrant or water opens up, they can't get a hold of the county. They can't get they can't a hold of fire. But Barbara, <laughs> you know, it, what do we do? So, you know, we start looking for numbers and, and, and do that so they know who to go to. You know, they can't find Barbara. Barbara say, we'll call Vicky or, and, and, you know, we, we connect them. Over the years, Fairmead Community and Friends have taken on a lot more than fire hydrants with their advocacy. When the only community well went dry, they helped secure federal grants to rebuild the water system. Then when high-speed rail announced the tracks would be running right through Fairmead, they fought successfully to keep the community whole. You know, we, we didn't want to threaten or make a stink or anything, but you know, when they originally started, they were going to cut out the church, they were going to cut out the school, and then with us saying something, trying to be the voice, they pushed it farther. It's getting late by the time the evening wraps up. They insist I take a bowl to go of Elaine's cherry cobbler. But before I leave, I have a parting question for Barbara. As one of the only residents of Fairmead who could remember when it was an almost all-Black settlement, I asked if she felt an obligation to preserve that history. I, I do, you know, but it's not many of us left here. Most of them moving out, so that's why during the Black History Time, when we have to keep that alive and keep going with that. Mm -hmm. You know, I think it's important to show that we was here, was the one who planted the cotton and did our part here That's in right. Fairmead to make it what it is too. We don't want to ever forget that. And not forgetting means, for her, telling the stories year after year. For The Other California, I'm Kathleen Schock in Fairmead. You're listening to Valley Edition. I'm Kathleen Schock. A farmer in Merced County seeking to expand his dairy is getting mixed responses from a neighboring community. As KVPR's Mavi Bolaños reports, some residents are not happy with the idea of more cow manure penetrating their air. It's a windy day in La Grande as Eddie Hoekstra drives through rows of cattle on his farm. Hoekstra manages about 8,000 cows on his nearly 2,300-acre farm called Hillcrest Dairy. He's 53 years old and has managed the farm for over 20 years. As he gets older, he says he thinks a lot about how he wants to leave the farm to his sons. I have sons, you know, two of them have degrees in, in agriculture, and my third son is also working here. If they want to stay in the dairy business in California, we have to be competitive. It's one reason Hoekstra has submitted a proposal to the county to increase the number of cows on his farm by 1,700. That would bring the total herd to nearly 10,000. And at a time of record high inflation, he sees the expansion as key to the survival of his family business. It's, it's one of those things that where you constantly have to look at improving your, your bottom line. Merced County is the second largest dairy producing county in the state. The county's dairy industry produced more than a billion dollars in profits in 2020, representing about one third of the county's agricultural production, according to the California Department of Food and Agriculture. But just down the road from Hillcrest Dairy is the unincorporated community of Planada, population 4,000. The community is predominantly Latino, and roughly 28% of the residents live below the poverty line. There, some residents are worried that any more cows will only diminish their quality of life. Rita Rodriguez is cutting the cilantro for her albondigas, or meatball soup, in her kitchen in Planada. 
She and her husband have lived in this home for nearly 30 years. She says the worst part of living a mile down the road from the farm is... The smell, especially in the summertime. And you're sitting outside enjoying a nice summer evening outside. And then all of a sudden this, it's like this pollution just comes into the air. And we just can't handle it. She says it doesn't smell every day, but it's frequent and can last for hours at a time. Her husband, David Rodriguez, says living down the road from Hillcrest Farms has been frustrating, especially when they try to raise concerns about the odor. Anxiety, anger, because there are times you can't do nothing about it, especially at the moment. And then when the past, when we've gone and talked with the Board of Supervisors, it goes in one ear and out the other. John Pedrozo is a former chairman of the Merced County Board of Supervisors. He represented the district that includes Planada. He also comes from a dairy farming family. He says he understands the residents' concerns, but says that's just a part of living in an agricultural community. You're going to get a certain amount of stench for a, li- for a little while because of the sediment in the lagoon comes through with the water. So it's going to smell, smell somewhat, but it goes away. Pedrozo says Hoekstra's contributions to the community far outweigh the inconvenience of the cow manure odor. Alicia Rodriguez has lived in Planada for 37 years and volunteers at the elementary school. She agrees with Pedrozo. But he gives to the school, he gives for community day, he gives to the churches, he gives to any program there is for kids. He's constantly giving money to Planada. But community advocates say that's not enough. Madeline Harris is with the Leadership Council for Justice and Accountability. She says the California Environmental Quality Act, or CEQA, requires the county to look into a dairy's impact on air and water quality. If there are significant environmental impacts, farmers are required to show mitigation efforts. At the end of the day, if the dairy is contributing to schools or other things in the community, if those things are not actually mitigating the environmental impacts that are being caused to the community, then the dairy expansion should not be allowable under CEQA. Back at Hillcrest Dairy, Eddie Hoekstra says he tries to stay in compliance with the various regulations set forth by the state. And he tries to be a good neighbor. I've said from the beginning when we moved here that I didn't want to be a nuisance to the community. I wanted to be an asset. He's also considering installing a dairy digester, which among other things could help reduce the smell from the dairy. Officials are currently preparing the environmental impact report for the project. The Merced County Planning Commission will decide on Hillcrest Dairy's expansion proposal after that. For KVPR News, I'm Adi Bolaños. This story is part of the Central Valley News Collaborative, which is supported by the Central Valley Community Foundation with technology and training support by Microsoft Corporation. This is Valley Edition. I'm Kathleen Schock. California is investing billions of dollars in high-tech solutions to predict and respond to natural disasters. But residents in rural communities facing fires, floods, and winter storms are increasingly embracing a century-old technology, two-way radios. Our colleague from CAP Radio, Scott Rod, has this story. The Caldor fire exploded on a hot August night last year, and Eileen Strangfeld's emergency radio fired up. Extreme fire behavior is observed. We had no idea just how fast it was spreading or how big it was when it started. So we all just sat up and monitored what was going on on the radio. 69-year-old Strangfeld isn't a firefighter or in law enforcement, but she is a member of the El Dorado County Neighborhood Radio Watch Group. As climate change worsens and natural disasters increasingly threaten communities across the country, people are turning to amateur radio groups to receive timely, life-saving updates during emergencies. In rural areas, where internet and cell coverage can easily fail, these networks are proving essential. Strangfeld lives in Grizzly Flats, one of the first towns to be evacuated. 
Current mandatory evacuation orders have been issued for the following areas. Grizzly Flat, Somerset. I've always had a to-go bag. Also, we took all of the important papers, the insurance papers, Medicare cards, the passports. We simply put in a binder and we left it in the car. Strangfeld was always prepared to evacuate, but she credits the radio network for giving her enough notice to save irreplaceable belongings, especially mementos of her late husband, Ken. He never bought me jewelry. He made it all. He uh, did lapidary work. And since he was gone, there was no way I would ever be able to replace my jewelry. Her home, along with hundreds of others in Grizzly Flats, burned to the ground. Okay, so I'm going to send an alert, and you'll see what these radios do, I hope. Bob Hess helped start the El Dorado County Neighborhood Radio Watch three years ago. He's giving me a tutorial on how the equipment works. If this were a real event, this is what our folks would be hearing. I met him on a hilltop where they set up a radio repeater, which helps boost their signal for dozens of miles. The Radio Watch Group launched after the 2018 campfire killed more than 80 people in Butte County. They acquire old radios off eBay. We'll buy these things like 100 at a time, clean them up, refurbish them, buy new batteries for them, and they're like brand new. The group has grown to about 350 members, but it faced some pushback at first. The general opinion uh, among law enforcement and uh, among the first responders was that we would create havoc in an emergency. Hess reassured them the group would only relay official emergency notifications, and they would stay clear of radio frequencies used by police and firefighters. Now the group has several former first responders on its board. Radio watch networks like this are popping up around the country. The pattern that we see is always in response to large-scale disasters or catastrophes. Joe Ames is national chairman of Radio Relay International, a nonprofit that works with local radio clubs. In New England, interest usually spikes after a major snowstorm, in Gulf states after a hurricane, or in the Midwest after a tornado. With so many amateur radio operators in the country, there are several hundred thousand at any given time, you have a good chance of contacting the authorities in case you need help. Over the holidays, the El Dorado County Radio Watch Network activated once again. The same area that saw devastating fire endured a walloping winter storm. The group helped stranded residents get food and firewood, as many in the area lost power and cell service for more than 10 days. In El Dorado County, I'm Scott Rod. You're listening to Valley Edition. I'm Kathleen Schock. Earlier this week, the Legislative Analyst Office released a series of reports about the impact of climate change that paint a dire picture of California's future. CalMatters environmental reporter Rachel Becker walked me through the report's key findings. So the report's kind of focused on a, a number of different hazards that climate change has already worsened as, and is expected to make more severe in California. So we're talking about heat, uh, increased drought intensity and frequency, flood risk, wildfire severity, which we see every year, um, coastal flooding, uh, and erosion as seas continue to rise. And so then they kind of applied these hazards um, and saw how they could affect really all aspects of life for Californians. Um, so from housing to infrastructure and uh, transportation to education. Um, for housing, for instance, um, looking at at large parts of the state that are really could be at risk for a lot of different impacts of climate change. They talked about how areas that are especially high risk might not be the right places to continue to develop and and build houses. And so um, the report kind of discussed that in the context of how to balance that against the state's goals to, to build more housing. They discussed how wildfires, heat and floods, all of these disasters that are exacerbated by climate change will force more frequent school closures and then disrupt education, childcare, school lunches. And we've already seen this happening. Uh, My colleague, uh, Ricardo Cano, chronicled disaster days in in the increase in school closures across California. And uh, the Legislative Analyst Office reported that more than 1,600 schools temporarily closed uh, because of wildfires every year between 2017 and 2020, which is, it's a huge increase over uh, the years leading up to that. 
This is all so alarming, you know, and, and in your reporting, you described the legislative analyst office as typically reserved. So can you just put into context just how shocking it was that the organization laid out our current state in such stark and dire terms? The the legislative analyst office has a really long history of of looking into to climate change, um, you know, aspects of budget proposals and, and California state policies. They've looked at uh, what, whether uh, transportation policies are working, uh, whether uh, the state's landmark cap and trade program uh, is going to be enough to meet the state's climate goals. Um, what these reports really do, the new ones that came out, is is look at uh, the impacts of climate change and how California will need to adapt. And they're very comprehensive. They really pull different pieces of research and um, data together to paint this really comprehensive picture of just how much California is going to keep facing. Well, what are the scientists saying that about whether these dire outcomes are an inevitability or, you know, are there still steps that we can take to mitigate the impact? Cutting fossil fuel emissions is, is going to be critical to mitigate these impacts. We saw a landmark international scientific report released this week that talked about how the clock is ticking, but it's not too late yet to stop the most severe effects by reducing greenhouse gas emissions. And we know how to do it. The question is whether there is the, the will. And um, this international report released Monday uh, showed that international accords and, and plans uh, continue to fall short. So what are you hearing about how these reports have been received, You know, particularly among elected officials and and the people in the state who hold the power to implement systemic changes to address climate change. Yeah, I spoke with a uh, state senator, uh, Bob Wykowski um, from Fremont, and um, he, he said that he plans to to use these reports as references and, and rationale for his subcommittee's budget proposals, for instance. Um, and and what he said he valued about the reports was that it, and I'm quoting him here, it turns the climate conversation into an all hands on deck versus, oh, this is uh, just some tree hugger over here. Uh, and so I think for him showing that, that climate change affects all aspects of life um, and is not just simply an environmental issue was really valuable. California has this reputation as being a, a true leader in climate change. But, you know, what all of these reports suggest is that whatever we've been doing up to this point, it's clearly not enough. So I'm just wondering, is that is that true? Is that a sentiment that is being held by the scientific community? I think that uh, among critics and also some lawmakers, um, you know, there is uh, this tension between California's climate efforts and California's uh, role as a major oil producing state. And um, there have been questions about whether California's uh, follow through and whether its uh, climate mitigation programs, including cap and trade, are really going to be as effective as they need to be to meet the state's um, climate change goals, which are very ambitious. The California Environmental Voters, which is an advocacy group, gave the state a D grade uh, for climate inaction last year. Uh, that said, the state also passed a $15 billion climate budget. So there really is kind of a balancing act going on in California. And, and really what remains to be seen is, is, is what will be the outcome of that balancing act. I've been talking with Rachel Becker, environmental reporter for CalMatters. We really appreciate you bringing us up to speed on the, on the latest on these reports. Well, thanks so much for the invitation. This is Valley Edition. I'm Kathleen Schock. For more than a decade, the nonprofit Trans Emotion has been supporting and advocating for the transgender community in Fresno County. To learn more about their work, I spoke to the organization's chair, Zane Anthony. He started by sharing how he got involved. Initially, it was a friend of mine who was a past chair of Trans Emotion who actually passed away a couple of years ago. And, you know, before that, I was involved for a few years and joined the board. And he really encouraged me to be a part of it because of my journey. And um, before I transitioned with hormone replacement therapy, um, I was socially transgender. 
I think of it like a temporary tattoo. So I change my name and gender, my pronouns, and I come out to my family, my friends, everybody around me. And I kind of test it out for a few years and make sure it's what I really want. And because of my drag king career, I was able to express myself in a more masculine way and have a more male illusionist type of look and perform male songs and just be in the masculine persona and get called sir and it was very validating to me and I could just feel what it felt like inside you know it it just felt right like it felt like it gave me more of a boost more confidence and courage to just you know keep doing it and expressing myself so after that I wanted biological children and so once I was able to successfully donate my eggs. I was able to um, medically start transitioning. And then my twins, I have twins, are basically as old as I am in my transition, which is kind of cool. So they just turned six and I just turned six. (laughs) I know that you have described the advocacy work you do as your life's passion, but I would imagine much of that drive comes from your role as a father definitely a strong passion and right now since they have started school they're in kindergarten i have twins one is a boy one is a girl and we like to say sex at birth instead of gender because we don't really know that until later and it's different So starting in a Clovis Unified School District, they don't have the best reputation for supporting our LGBT community. And I went to Clovis schools my whole life. I graduated from Clovis High and now my kids are in Clovis Unified as well. And so I made sure that I met with whoever was in charge and above the people you know, in charge of my kids, just to make sure that everybody was aware and knowledgeable and affirming and supportive. And I, I do feel that there's a lot of work to be done in the awareness and the knowledgeable part of it. And I do feel that they were also very affirming and supportive. So we decided, you know, how can we work together? And based on your experience, I'm basically something they can read in a book. So as many books as they've read, I can actually help them with the journey. And now that my kids are involved, I'm like really even more passionate than I was before. And the papa bear comes out and I'm like, hey, how was your day? Anybody telling you anything today? (laughs) And I don't like put it out there in a negative way, but I just try and get some feedback. And based on every everything, um, the staff and even the students. Um, I know it's just kindergarten and it's like, oh yeah, all, all little kids like sparkly things and they don't really know, you know, what is what right now. So, I mean, that kind of helps, but I feel like overall I've had really good support around me and around my kids as well. That's really, really good to hear. So for those who are not familiar with Trans Emotion, tell us about the work that you do with that organization? So Trans Emotion is a 501c3 nonprofit here in Fresno. We do serve the entire Central Valley and virtually we try to reach as many people as possible, even if it's out of the state or out of our physical connection. But as far as our programs and resources, we began um, partnering with Equality California, and they have awarded us a couple of grants throughout the year to allow us to create these programs for our community, such as our rental relief fund. And this is an emergency rental assistance for transgender, non-binary, gender non-conforming, and two-spirit individuals who live in Fresno County. And it is an emergency rental assistance fund for those in need. And that's all you need to qualify. All you have to do is go to our website at transemotion.com. And all of the info is there. And there's a link where you can just click and apply to the form there. 
And part of our gender affirming program is a chest binder program, which is targeted towards the more masculine presenting community. And this is a type of like chest compression tank top. And it's fit to really like flatten out your chest for those who are pre-op. And it's been really helpful. We've got a lot of um, applicants for that. And I'm glad that we're able to provide such programs so that it helps with our gender dysphoria when we're out in public and such things that create anxieties that may not feel comfortable for us at that time. And then when we put something like this on, it just gives us the euphoria that we need. So I'm glad to have that. Um, we do have a couple of LMFT family mental health therapists on our team, and they do provide free WPATH letters of support for anyone in need of an evaluation and a letter to show in order to proceed with their transition, such as surgeries or anything to further their transition. So all of that is also on our website. And um, as far as our support groups within our community, um, another gender affirming support group targeted for um, female to male, masculine presenting, or anybody just wanting to get in shape who is transgender, we provide a safe space for them with a certified trainer who is also female to male. So we have, relatable experiences and we're able to connect and feel more comfortable working out because a lot of us also have the dysphoria for going to the gym and stuff just being in public and especially working out it's harder for us because we know what how we feel and what we have or what we're uncomfortable with even if nobody else around us sees it it just kind of gives us that anxiety about going so this is virtually and anybody can join from the comfort of their own space whether it's outside in an open space or in their living room it doesn't matter they can even have their camera off if they're not comfortable but um, it does create a brotherhood and we're able to connect with people even outside of our local community and that is a free program sponsored by equality california out against big tobacco grant and then uh, Wade Hawk is the name and he, of the trainer and he owns Freedom to Move Gym. So it's kind of great that even though we're in different time zones, we can still connect and, and make that happen. And then um, as far as support groups, uh, we have transgender youth support groups. We have caregiver support groups. We have a, a 16 and over support group. And some of these are in-person, some of these are virtual. And we also newly created a SOGI talk workshop, which stands for Sexual Orientation, Gender, Identity, and Expression. And we try to distinguish the difference between those three categories because they are all different and they mean different things. So we try to help in that way by presenting the information on a basic level. And then after that, we have a group called Meet in the Middle where we encourage you to bring a partner to group such as like a couples therapy type of session. And we are interacting together to meet in the middle because I feel that we are all transitioning together. So if you attend the SOGI workshop, you get a better understanding of the terminology, what it means, how your loved one feels, and then by coming to the group and expressing that, they can understand a little bit better of how to support them. You know, earlier you mentioned safe spaces and, and I'd like to talk to you about, you know, one space that, you know, I as a cisgendered woman have had the privilege of not really thinking about how gendered the space is. And that's a salon or, or a barbershop. And I, I know that there's an effort, a movement, I should say, called Strands for Trans, in which barbershops and salons can identify as safe spaces 
for members of the transgender community. Can you talk a little bit about why this movement is so significant? Absolutely. Yeah, thank you for bringing that up. I am actually a licensed barber as well, and I do get both sides of it. It's kind of interesting because before I medically transitioned and started getting my physical side effects of testosterone, such as a deep voice and a beard, I was considered passable to myself. And so before that, I didn't really feel as confident and as passable. And when I did enter the barbershop, I felt a more type of masculine toxicity type of feel. And it kind of ties in with being privileged in a way of not knowing or understanding or thinking about that type of stuff when you are cisgender, male or female, and you're talking about male or female. Things that may or may not be insulting or offensive to somebody who is you know, transitioning or may identify a certain way, but we just don't think about that. But um, I think now that the awareness is coming up and this movement is happening, a lot more people are being open to it and also open-minded to their surroundings and more accepting to their clients. And that would make a client feel more comfortable. And of course, coming back, but also opening up to them as well, because we are also like therapists when you're in our chair. And, you know, for that session, we're talking about a lot of things and people tend to open up to us about a lot of personal things. So um, I think it's really important and I'm glad that it's happening. I know it's been happening globally and I'm glad to see it start here uh, spreading locally in our area. Well, I could certainly identify. I've cried in the chairs of, of many a hairstylist over the years. So <laughs> it does happen. So for those listening who want to get involved in the work that you're doing, want to support the work that you're doing, or just want to be better allies. What is your call to action? Oh, that would be awesome. Um, you can definitely contact us on our website and it's www.transemotion.com. And you'll just fill out your name, email, type a message, hit send, and we will get back to you as soon as we can. And it's always great to have volunteers, especially allies of our community, because I feel it's just really important. And it shows great leadership by being a great ally for others to follow you. So I appreciate that. Thank you. Well, thank you. I've been talking with Zane Anthony, chair of the nonprofit organization Trans Emotion. Zane, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me. Absolutely. Thank you, Kathleen. And finally, if live music is your thing, Fresno's Tower District is the place for you tomorrow, as 60 porches and venues present more than 100 performances for the second annual Tower Porch Fest. KVPR's David Ouse spoke with organizer Jeremy Hofer and Fresno Bee Entertainment reporter Josh Teehee. That's just a sampling of the sounds of last year's Tower Porch Fest. What is a porch fest, you ask? I asked Jeremy Hofer, one of the founders of Fresno's Tower Porch Fest, about the origins of Porch Fest and how it's come to life in Fresno. So I read somewhere that one of the first kind of modern porch fests was in uh, Ithaca, New York. How did the uh, Porch Fest come onto your radar? Yeah, that's the origin story. It was actually a friend of mine who had moved to Modesto and was sending me lists of kind of cool things to do uh, in Modesto and, and the Modesto Porch Fest was one of them. And I just thought that was such a cool idea. It was actually about three years ago or so. And, and then when the pandemic hit, me and my friend Nolan, we were hanging out and we were talking about how, how do we re-enter? How do we get things going again now that it just, it feels so uncomfortable to even be inside with other people and see bands. I'm, I'm myself, I'm a musician in bands. He actually is, is, a, is a farmer that provides food to restaurants and both of us had been affected by the pandemic and our lives had 
change as 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 with so many people. And so talking there, we thought, you know, porch fest. How about how about we we take the celebration outside and and that was really the germination of the idea was was knowing that Modesto had a porch fest. As I researched, I had no idea how prevalent it is, especially across the country and on the East Coast. But even here on the West Coast, Napa has a porch fest. There's a number of other communities. And so it's a philosophy, you know, more than just a kind of a festival. It's a it's a whole way of of doing festivals and building community that's out there. So a really cool thing to be part of and have learned about. And so from idea to reality, tell me a little bit about last year's event. Sure. Yeah. So last year was the first Tower Porch Fest that happened back in April. And as you recall, we were kind of coming out of this pandemic, maybe in spurts. I think we had just hit orange level or red level or something as we were, it was leading up to it. There was a lot of uncertainty going through our heads, but we, you know, we felt pretty confident about it because these were celebrations happening outdoors and the science was telling us that, you know, transmission was was on the whole, mostly not happening outdoors. It was happening indoors. And so we felt good about it. And we, and so that was the first year that we had it just coming still in the pandemic, really. Right. And how many acts and how many porches did you have last year? Yeah. So that first year, you know, we, we, when we started, we, we were expecting to have, you know, five porches open up on one street and, uh, you know, have a couple of our, our friends bands playing and, and then it just took off and, and it grew to over 40 porches and over 80 acts throughout the neighborhoods. And so, uh, even bigger this year, how many, how many acts and how many porches this year? Yeah, we had a great foundation after last year. A lot of the porches that signed up last year wanted to do it again this year. And so to date, we have 60 porches with 140 acts about. Um, and one just came in today wanting to sign up. So we're still accepting them as as we come up to the the day. That's terrific. What's the best way to experience Porch Fest? If somebody wants to go out and, and hear all these performances, see all these performances, what's the best way to, to experience it? Sure. So we publish a map. It's not a paper map, but uh, it's a map that's that's online at towerporchfest.org. And there's actually two different types of maps that people can explore. One has the porches and their lineups. And so there's about 60 dots on the map. And they can pull up the different porches that are participating. And the other one is it has all of the performers, so about 140 dots on the map. And they can filter these performers. They can list them. They can filter them by time, uh, search for a given performer. So the app that we're using allows for a lot of kind of versatility in, in exploring this map. Excellent. So walking or riding a bike, probably the best way to, to experience things, right? Yep. Great point. David, yeah, definitely walking, biking, skipping, dancing. We're specifically asking people to keep the cars on the outskirts if they must drive to the tower. Obviously, many people are coming from the tower to attend their own neighbors' uh, events. And so, you know, lots of bicycles will be expected that day. And the venues are not just houses, right? There are businesses that will be having folks on their porches as well. Yeah, the quote unquote porches. Um, th these were co we're calling business sponsor porches. Uh, last year, we had a lot of interest from the business community to host um, you know events to uh, kind of gain customers and gain visibility, and we embraced that. We 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 figured they would do it regardless of whether we put them on the map or not. And so, we've included a number of porch sponsors like Goldstein's and Spokeasy and High Top, and we've got a number of others, Neighborhood Thrift and BLK Marketplace. And so those are going to be um, other types of just, just a range of celebrations that are happening at the businesses as well. We've got a car show happening in the in the morning. That's not that's independent of us. So they're actually doing a big stage on on Olive. So literally the whole tower district is for, from start to finish of that day is going to be in celebratory mode. That sounds like a lot of fun. And within the music, endless array of genres of music as well, right? That's what's kind of most exciting to me is how diverse the 
the types of music and bands from you know singer songwriters to full bands that are well known out there that are on Spotify and yeah and that's that's really comes straight from the porches and the diversity of the tower itself as an organizing crew we don't curate we don't select bands when a band or a performer comes to us and asks to play porch fest we say great find a porch and that's how it's grown and it's really you know it really is truly building community in in the sense that porches are reaching out to musicians they know and musicians are reaching out to porches they know or i call them porches but really they're residents or homeowners that are in the tower that uh, want to bring things together so it's been really cool to watch <laughs> To get more insight, I also spoke with one of the Valley's biggest music fans, Fresno B Entertainment writer Josh Teehee. You had a chance to experience some of last year's Porch Fest. Tell me what that was like for you. You know, it was great. When Porch Fest happened last year, it felt like exactly what the Fresno music scene needed at the time because we hadn't had like music stuff in like a year. And then here was this thing that they were offering you know, go see a bunch of music in one kind of day. So as soon as I heard about it, it was one of those things that just seemed like such a perfect fit for Fresno, for the neighborhood. It was a great day. It was amazing just to see people out in the front yard and there were bands playing and then one band would be done and then everyone would kind of turn around and go to the next porch. What I really appreciated about it was the amount of diversity that was happening throughout the day. So the you just had so many different types of bands playing. So it really felt like the entirety of the music scene was like together on this one day. Are there acts in particular that you're kind of think are, would be highlights to check out? Yeah. So I think the thing to do this year, they have sponsors uh, and uh, each uh, several of the sponsors have put together uh, like sponsor stages they all brought in together really awesome lineups as well. So um, Raging Records has a really cool lineup that includes Fashan. So, you know, fairly popular Fresno rapper, huge, huge guy. So that's happening at Raging. That's really good. I think the other one that I would be really uh, excited for is over at Spoke Easy. They have a huge lineup of bands playing, including Sleepover Disaster, who's been around forever and it's a really great band. But people just have to go to the find the map that they have online and they really just got to play through it and kind of see what they're into because depending on what you're into there are a hundred plus bands playing so you're going to find something you you like that was fresno b writer josh tehe tower porch fest is happening tomorrow saturday april 9th in fresno's tower district you can find maps of porches and performers at towerporchfest.org for valley edition i'm david alves And that's today's Valley Edition. You could hear all this and more on our website, kvpr.org. You could also download the podcast and find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. We've got an app. It's called KVPR. The show is produced by our news team, including Alice Daniel, Carrie Klein, Mavi Bolaños, and Sarith Hawk. Technical support is from Don Weaver. I'm your host, Kathleen Schock. Thanks for listening. Support for Valley Edition comes from the James Irvine Foundation, accepting nominations now for the 2023 James Irvine Foundation Leadership Awards at irvineawards.org. The California Endowment, health happens when Californians value schools more than prisons. Learn more at calendow.org. The California Healthcare Foundation, working to build a more effective, compassionate, and just healthcare system. On the web at chcf.org slash health equity.